Thank you for coming out in the storm. I saw Becky doing the backstroke out there. She was trying to get in during the hail storm. I think she was trying to catch ice with her tongue. So I'm going to do a little recap here. Um, I did a couple of messages before on language and, and words. And I kind of wanted to back up and cover those over again before we move on to this next part of it. So um, maybe it'll sound a little familiar. Hopefully it does. <laughs> it wasn't gone altogether. So I want to talk about the rise and fall of human communication, and then I want to remind us about the believers' battle with words before jumping into today's victory over our words. So the rise and fall of human communication, the rise, God's words. As God spoke to Adam and Eve, his babies, he shaped them as people, as a couple, as stewards of the earth. Our relationships are defined by our words, mostly through our words. What was it like for Adam and Eve in the beginning? How were they shaped by the heart of their father through the words he spoke to them? Imagine with God's mind came simplicity and beauty. Out of his heart were spoken words of love and peace. Everything that was spoken probably reflected God's glory. Words are knowledge, and even perfect people living in a perfect world needed to have that world interpreted for them. And God was there always to be asked, to be questioned. God defined their world for them, even defined them. Discoveries were made with their five senses, but understanding came through the words of God. Human communication is all about organizing, interpreting, and explaining what we think we know about what we feel. They were always probably saying, let's go ask Abba. Have you ever thought of God that way? The perfect reference point? The one that you can go to every moment of every day to understand your world. This is what it was like for them. How would, how would your life be different now if that had been your reference point? If every question that came to your mind, every struggle, every event was given over to God for understanding. This was their world. In the beginning, there was peace. Infinite time, no death. Just think about that for a second. No anxiety. No worry, no fear, no pressure, no stress or doubt. God reigned, and He reigned in everything. He reigned over time, He reigned over jobs, He reigned over sleep and health and life. There were no arguments, no lies. Everything could be settled by just asking God. No words of hate, no impatience, no irritated responses to anything. There was no yelling, no cursing. No accusations or blame being thrown around. No words spoken out of pride or deception or manipulation. There were only true words kindly spoken. When I taught this last time, I gave you guys an illustration about me and my son Jack. Uh, his job was to vacuum the house, and I got angry with him because the vacuuming hadn't been done for several days. I went upstairs and confronted him and laid out every wrong that he had ever done. Because I was going to do what Satan's about to do in the beginning. Take authority away from God. Lose the reference voice. Not submit myself to his authority, but become the authority figure. Yet this is so contrary to what God gave us. The first words were God's. He gave us language so we could know him, each other, ourselves in this world. The only reason we understand anything is because He allows us language. Our words belong to Him, and yet we constantly claim them for ourselves. Think about it today. 
Did you say anything because God wanted you to? Was any of your speech guided by Him? Was He referenced at all with any words you spoke this week? The only reason we understand anything is because He allows us language. And that language is His. Our words belong to Him, so much so that we will be judged for every careless word we use. In Matthew 12, verse 34, it says, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Prior to the fall, a person's self-control was really necessary. Kindness, patience, and honesty was simply the way human beings were. The creation springing from God's mind and out of His thoughts, words, was good. All good. His heart was His children's heart. And they were like their father. Good. All good. But then entered Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Many destructive firsts took place right here. First challenge to God's authority is brought forth. First reinterpretation of reality is put forward. First lie. And then later Adam, who becomes Satan's first convert, begins to accuse Eve and actually blame God. Now don't be tempted to point a finger at Satan or Adam right now. Each of us, every time we have seen, been in an argument where we were assuming the authority of God, where we have reinterpreted facts to meet our ends, even lied to ourselves that we are justified, and ended up accusing loved ones and ultimately blaming God himself, every time Satan's voice from the Garden of Eden lives again through us. Words that challenge God's authority, lies, reinterpretations of reality, accusations of blame against God and man have all had their beginnings at this moment in time, and we perpetuate that continually. In our speech, we now reflect the image of God and the destructive force of Satan. Our words depict God's design and Satan's rebellion. Conversations are no longer easy. No wonder people are anxious about communicating. We live in a world where reports manipulate anger, wounds, commentary is expected to slander. And disrespectful words challenge the authority of God over and over again. When I went storming upstairs with that vacuum in hand and presented it to my son, I didn't know that the vacuum had been broken. But yet I laid out a list of wrongs that he had done because I was not a man under God's authority. I was a man assuming God's authority. I would wager that most of your arguments, this is how it moves. 
we jump into a position where we are self-righteous, basing our understanding on facts that we've interpreted for our ends, and we've lashed out. This is, again, Satan speaking once more. This origin story uh, has a fulfillment in what comes in James chapter 4. So we jump to the nearly the end of the Bible. We talk about the believer's battle with words. James has some powerful insight. I think I preached on the first eight verses of chapter 4. But I just want to look at two today. In James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he warns us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire that you do not have, so you kill. You covet that you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When desires challenge God. James asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now the modern counselor will simply tell you, oh, that's easy. That's a lack of communication skills. All you need are better listening skills, the ability to clearly state what you really want and how it will make you feel. And if you couch all of this within iMessaging format, your argument will diminish. Well, James goes in a radically different direction than modern counseling. He tells us to stop justifying what we want and submit to God's wants. But what I speak is directly related to what my heart wants. Remember what Jesus said? The mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. And you might notice this too. James is not saying that desires are wrong. He's not even condemning evil desires. He's saying desires, period. When they replace God's desires and become God in your life, become idols. He is saying the problem comes when my desires take God's throne. Whatever controls the heart will control the tongue. In fact, when a certain desire controls my heart, there are only two ways I can actually respond to you. If you help me with that desire, I appreciate you. If you stand in the way of my desire, I will be angry with you. Or as James puts it in verse 2, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Last time I preached this, I talked about um, a fake scenario that I concocted from two different stories where I was working as a soccer coach who was trying to produce a devotion where people would come to salvation. And I had written and written and written the perfect demonstration of the gospel for children and adults, parents, thinking that it would come to pass. And then a child kept interrupting the whole thing, ruined the whole message. And the mother confronted me in the parking lot about how she didn't believe in God and my Bible and all that kind of stuff. And I responded vehemently in the story, not in real life. <laughs> the idea is really simple in this. I wanted to give them the gospel for their salvation originally. I wanted what I thought God wanted. But at some point, my want, my desire morphed into a perfect presentation of the gospel. And when that got in the way of my want, I became God. I replaced God and got angry. Somehow, a good desire, even to share the gospel, can battle in my heart until it takes control of my heart. Only God should have authority over my heart. When desires become idols, a desire to save souls can become an idol, a demand to rule my heart. At any moment, it can effectively replace God as the controller of my heart. Scripture calls it an idol. Idolatry is what my heart 
is controlled by other than God. This happens more often than you think. The natural desire to succeed at work or school becomes a demand for appreciation. The desire to have enough to play up to pay bills morphs into a lust for riches. The desire to be a good parent becomes the desire to enhance our own reputations. A desire for friendship becomes a demand for acceptance. What was once a healthy desire can become an idol if we're not careful. This is why James commands us in verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is why he says in verse 3, when you pray, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Rather than prayers offered by a love for God and my neighbor, I pray for that which will bring me pleasure. And if our prayers contain such double-mindedness, how much more idolatry do our conversations contain when God is not Lord of our words? And beyond this, what chance does an argument have in letting God speak? One more step that James takes us into. He says that it leads to murder, in verse 2, when idols kill. When a desire replaces God, it becomes an idol. It can be permanent, it can be temporary, but it will kill. It is hard to hold our desires loosely and not give them power to battle for dominion. This movement from natural, healthy desires to elevated, exalted demands is idol carving. And this is how it hurts. When a desire is valued over God, fantasized over, crafted and given too much attention, it grows stronger and battles for control until it becomes a demand. Next, since the demand keeps demanding and not getting, and the one demanding is constantly frustrated, we begin to feel loss, deprivation, and anxiety. When this happens, we elevate the desire to the status of need. Once a desire is perceived as a need, some disappointments are perceived as a matter of life and death. And to speak metaphorically, the idol begins to demand a human sacrifice. Our need, not because, not be, no doubt becomes a vital expectation. And unfulfilled expectations lead to some kind of punishment. Stupid arguments, perhaps. Verse 2. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Your desire, I'm sorry, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. The question we must ask ourselves today is simple. Have our desires, our idols, killed Christ in us? And specifically, how have Christ's words been overturned by our own words? To recap, the rise of human communication, communication came by God and was given to us by Him. It fell when Satan entered the picture and converted Adam. The believer's battle with words is one where we keep exalting our own desires to a godlike status and speaking for them more than speaking for God. But victory over our words brings Christ to center stage again. Jesus has victory over our words if we obey His word. Am I fading out here, or is it just me? I think I squeezed the juice out of this. I'm so nervous, I just squeezed all the energy out. No, I'm a little bit, give me a little more juice, please. I need to be able to hear it echo in my own brain. 
sometimes you say things inside me, that's your name. Uh, the fabric of the universe is words. The fabric of the universe. Words. The universe came into existence through words. You and I fell because we broke faith with the word of God. Salvation came to us through the word who became flesh and preached to us the words of life. And we are transformed by our obedience to his words. Let's stand for the reading of scripture, shall we? Turn to John chapter 8. Nudge your neighbor and wake him up. John chapter 8. Let's read verses 31 through 38, shall we? Let me know when you're there. Give me the wiggly eyebrow. Amanda, see it? Oh, great, thanks. All right, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 31. 31. To the Jews who have believed in, Jesus said, If you hold to my word, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but the son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me. Because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. The reading of God's word back to your Jesus. In this brief dialogue, we see Jesus trying to give life to those who desire to run with Satan. We see religious people, good people who want to believe Jesus. They want to believe. They want to believe He's actually from God. They're excited about the proposition. But they've been so conditioned by Satan, they have no room for His words. This is one of the saddest dialogues in John because of the rapid progression from faith in Christ to murderous intent. They actually decide to stone Jesus at the end of His conversation. I want you to examine your own heart in this life. If Jesus were to come today, would we still him? If he were to deal with us face to face about our following of him, our obedience to his words, would it fit into our matrix? Jesus' words are life. And our obedience to this love, these words literally give us life. And when we reject these words, His commands by replacing them with our own, when we reinterpret as Satan has taught us, when we blame and accuse as Adam has taught us, we kill life. In the verses prior to this passage, it says in verse 30 that they believed for a little bit, for a little while. They had a glimpse, a glimmer. Jesus points to the Father and they see the identity of the likeness for a moment. In verse 30 it says... Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Notice what it says. Even as he spoke. As the words of Christ were being experienced by his hearers, they breathed into them the spark of belief, catalyst for life. 
when they obeyed or accepted His words just as they were, they began to break free from death's love and grip. It is the actual words of Christ finding real expression in us that frees us from our self-deceiving ways. Look at verses 30 and 31. Jesus proclaims, If you hold, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you hold, that word is extraordinary. Do you look at it as a place, as a time, as a condition? The word means to remain as in a place continually. As to time, it means to persist, to last, to endure, to survive. As to being or condition, it means to remain as one, not to become another or something different. In other words, hold to the Logos, the word of your Savior, your survival depends on it, your being, your life, and your discipleship. And do not entertain another or a different word, not even your own. Satan has led us all to assume the authority of God more often than not. We speak words with no reference to God, even though He's the one who created them. We couch reality in our own imaginations, and we critique with our finite minds as if we know 100%, when the only thing we should be able to say we know is what Paul said, I know Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And as religious people, we create new logos, which has a form of godliness, but denies his power to give life. Like these religious Jewish people, we read the scriptures with a kind of vague consent to the general idea. But rarely do we take the very words of Christ without adding our own words to it, our own conditions, expectations, and values. If we hold to the teachings of Christ without saying, did God really say that? Then we can escape Eve's fate. If we can simply obey immediately like Abraham, we can expect God to live among us. Cain was told that sin is crouching at his door, and he ignored it. I am telling you that your words are crouching at Christ's commands, and most of you will probably ignore it. You have the chance to reverse death in your life and the lives of those around you if you hold to His teaching. If you do all that He commands, if you truly love Him, if you are really His disciples. But you have to look at the words and let them take root. Let me give you an example. And I'm sorry, I had, I had one of those weeks. So this example is going to toot my own horn. You guess what that means, right? My grandma used to say it all the time. My brother and I would be bragging about something and one of us would get angry with the other. She said, ah, oh, he's just took his own heart. Then she'd say, if he doesn't, nobody else will. So anyway, I, like, I don't want to tell negative examples of myself, but I need a positive one because this is a positive thing. Anyways, Ephesians says, listen up, man. I was like, just did Mother's Day, right? Father's Day, we sort of just skip on by. Where are the fathers in here? Raise your hand if you're married. Raise your hand if you're just married. Don't have to be a father, just married. You've got a spouse. Look, what's we doing, man? Be proud, yeah. 
Jen, did you raise your hand or are you asleep? <laughs> I, I, I was checking, you look like you're checking the stock market. That's a bit. Why are you laughing so hard? Is he actually doing that? Oh, hi, what's all right? Thanks. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, husbands, is this verse guiding your marriage? It's okay if you have another. I'm fine, but is any verse guiding your marriage? Is the words of Christ, are the words of Christ your foundation? Are you a disciple of Christ? If you hold to my words, then not this vague acceptance, I heard it, I'm good, I'll see you later. Holding to his words, dividing your entire life by these words. Illustration. Joe, as you all know, passed away last November. My wife's uh, father. Sitting. Chris, I'm glad you're taking this. It's a good man, Joe. <laughs> I was preparing for Luke and Francis's wedding, and this passage kept coming up. Husbands, love your wives. It's Christ of the church. And as I began to meditate on this passage, while Cindy was suffering so much over her father, it dawned on me that my wife's mother and father are now in heaven. And that I'm it now. As far as an adult helper or caregiver for her goes, I'm in. I realized I needed to see my care for her as I care for my own children. This is really hard since Cindy is such a competent, capable person. As she grieved the passing of her, 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 last, father, her last parent, I started asking Jesus, Lord, show me how to live out this verse for my wife. I think she really needs me to look more like you now. So these are the changes God has brought about thus far. I started carrying her burdens the way I see Jesus carrying mine. <clears throat> I took on the sole care of our ailing dog. I started doing the grocery shopping started loading, unloading the dishwasher. I changed uh, the way we eat, work, and play. I have been doing more of the cooking, and I started praying with her more often in an attempt to pray the way the Holy Spirit helps me pray. I try to listen to her the way I think Jesus listens to me. And this is just a start, but already I've seen several changes take place in the months. And while I still have a long way to go, I can already see Jesus moving more and more in the center of our marriage, in our home, in our life. I can honestly say my love for her has grown since I started acting obediently to Christ's words. But as an example, husbands, not, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but in what way are you actively, progressively holding on to the words of God? How are you laying down your life for your bride? And just quiet your voice right now. This is, this is the struggle you, know, you have early on. You, know, you need to shush yourself. You know, don't let Adam speak. Don't let him try to justify or cast blame. Don't let Satan assume authority in this. Just listen to the commands and wait for Christ to give you instruction. 
Or have you killed that life-giving command by changing it? Are you doing it right now? Are you doing to it, Christ's commands, that is, what the believing, unbelieving Jews, believing Jews, tried to do to Jesus? Have you stoned that command so badly with your own ideas about what it means that you have effectively killed the life-giving properties of that command? And if so, can you say you are his disciple? Yeah, it's a heavy message. It's, it's the idea of us actually obeying the very words of Christ. Stopping with the commentary, stopping with the second guessing, but actually obeying the words of Christ. Our words are like stones. Jesus' words are bread. Our ideas about Christianity are poison. Jesus' commands are life. Our religious practices are of earth. Jesus' life was heaven on earth. So the question, the big question for all of us, are you holding on to the words of Jesus? Or have you rationalized everything you do for God as an adequate placement? In other words, are there behaviors in your life, duties, things that are taking place where you can point to the verse that drove you to it? That, craft, that crafted you in His likeness. Don't reject this question like the Jews rejected Jesus simply because it disrupts your life or challenges your usual faith practices. You don't want to be guilty of moving from belief to murder. Jesus says in verses 34 and 37, Verily, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but the son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, that you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. In what way have you made room for Jesus' words, his actual words? What commands are you practicing right now? Which verses are guiding your work tomorrow? When you look in the mirror, do you see what Jesus commands you to see? A royal priest, a member of a holy nation, a servant of the Lord God Almighty, or just a student, just a worker, just a husband, a wife, or just an earthly son of God? In other words, other words, that's the problem, isn't it? Whose words rule your life? Whose words define you? Whose words explain your experiences? Whose words shape you like a plane in our carpenter's hands? Whose words rebuke you like a shepherd's staff? Whose words crucify your doubts and resurrect your hope? Whose words drive you to prayer? Whose words laugh at your worries? Whose words make you as bold as a lion and as innocent as in other words, our sinful life needs another's words. We need his words. Maybe as plain as possible. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Even more clear, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Even more clear, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, 
that we will make our home with Him. And clearest of all, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now please don't make the mistake, those of you who don't know the gospel. I'm not saying your obedience saves you from hell. Your salvation started the day you repented of your sins and gave your life to Christ before you obeyed any of His commandments. No. Our obedience is how we thank Him for what He's already given us. Obedience to His unpolluted words is how we please Him, enjoy Him, learn from Him, walk with Him, delight in Him, and experience our Father's transforming power in us. Let me give you a command from Jesus to start with. This is one the youth group is currently working on. Love one another just as I have loved you. Here's the temptation. You have heard that before, and you're going to relegate it to your previous understanding. As if the spirit were dead, as if these lives were not alive. These words were not alive. Don't do that to yourself. Yes, you've heard it before. But have you ever obeyed? Love one another just as I love you. Have you ever brought the command to Christ over and over again the way a good employee asks, what's next, boss? What's next? Have you ever loved a brother or sister in Christ the same way Jesus currently loves you? Someone will be here next month. I would like to give you this challenge. Pray and ask God which brother or sister you are going to love as Christ is loving you. Then ask our Lord how He wants you to do it. And a little hint here. It will look a lot like the way Christ is currently loving you. Don't you dare put limits on it. Don't you dare stone it to death with your ideas, your words, your boundaries, or your conditions. Just obey it the way Jesus does. This is what it means to be a son or daughter of Abraham. To allow Christ's victory over our words. Let me pray for this. Father, you've called us to a, a very interesting walk. <clears throat> One that's very clear, very straightforward, but very hard to do. We know that you've said the burden is easy and the yoke is light, but you've also said to pick up your cross and carry it. So, Lord, help us with a willing heart and innocence and children to move forward in faith and obedience to your commands so that your spirit can come alive in us. Help us to cast our stones aside, to lay our ideas and our interpretations away so that you can speak clearly and powerfully. We want to be your disciples, Lord. Help us to hold them with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. For in them we find you. See you speaking to us, guiding us, directing us, and coaching us along the way more intimately than we ever imagined. So please, God, help us to return to your word and be faithful to you. Not for any kind of salvation, but because we love you and want to be where you are. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, can I ask some